if you'll hold your questions until the end, uh, left lots of time for questions on what I'm saying or on any, on any other issues that may come up. Uh, the, um, I guess the, uh, the first thing I'll do is uh, say a few words about myself, my background, and how I came to be here, so you can put that, put my remarks into context. Uh, in school, I formally studied uh, business and law, but informally, uh, for a long time, I've been studying uh, that, plus uh, a lot of history and philosophy, because I think you need many different disciplines to understand what's going on and to be able to, uh, to, uh, to cope with it. Uh, in terms of my career, ever since I started working uh, full-time in the financial services industry in 1996, that has been my career. I've worked in many different roles uh, in different brokerage firms. Uh, I've worked with retail advisors. I've worked uh, with the uh, sales managers, the uh, uh, institutional uh, uh, bond desk uh, relief trading. I've done uh, corporate finance, uh, worked on various corporate finance deals. I've seen the business and I've had retail clients myself. I've seen the business from just about every angle. Before I even got into the industry in 96, I could have told you that gold was essential. Uh, I think I first uh, uh, read the best uh, summary of it uh, from Doug Casey back in uh, 1995. But even though before that I believed that gold was good and after I read Casey I could tell you a bit about why you needed gold. It wasn't until I discovered the professor's writings back in about 2002 that I could really explain it right down to the root why it was essential to a portfolio and essential to the financial system. And I think that's uh, the reason I put that uh, second point there about philosophy uh, being critical so that you can understand things down to the root. Uh, you need to be able to be certain of your own thinking be able to make decisions, especially as we're getting into a, a complex environment. Now, uh, a few words uh, about what I'm about to say to give the proper motivation for it. Of course, about 50% of what I'm saying is the professor's ideas uh, through my interpretation as a, a way of uh, further explanation of them. Probably about 10% uh, are the uh, ideas and comments of uh, Tom Zabo. Uh, although I think they're the less controversial ones, the ones that uh, Sandeep would probably agree with. Uh, Tom, of course, is not here to speak for himself, and I, my understanding of his ideas is certainly not the level uh, uh, to be able to uh, argue for them, but I will uh, definitely present them as, uh, as appropriate. And about 40% of the, con the remaining content is uh, my own uh, interpretations and what I think are uh, some of the relevant things that are being left out of the discussion. Now, uh, back in uh, 2004, the professor wrote an essay, I think it was the uh, Bull in Bear's Skin, where he talked about uh, how it may be many years before, uh, may maybe many years before the dollar finally collapses and the value of gold uh, uh, increases substantially. And I'm sure I was not alone among other gold enthusiasts that thought, oh, it can't possibly take that long. And of course, what I had in mind was something like you see here, uh, where I always thought that we were just uh, on the verge of the system collapsing and, uh, and gold returning to its rightful place. And as we know, that was 2004, and as we know, five years later, uh, it, it did not happen. It did happen exactly as the professor expected, uh, whether by conscious design or uh, by chance. The people that are benefiting from the continued existence of the paper money system did continue to benefit and possibly continue to accumulate real gold and silver ounces uh, at the expense, unfortunately, of enthusiastic uh, gold investors, or overly enthusiastic. And who knows where we are on the chart right now. The reason I mention this is that 
Many of you, uh, although uh, obviously you, you wouldn't be here if you weren't interested in the ideas, I'm sure that many of you uh, wish you had more gold than you have. Uh, and of course, at the end of the presentation, or the, the final section of it, I will give you what I think are the, the best leading edge uh, ideas for or the application of it for a simple, uh, profitable application of um, the, uh, the theories that the professor has developed. But if we are at a late stage of the game, I don't want any of you to think that, well, if, if the, uh, maybe what Nathan is going to say is going to be pointless anyhow because if gold price explodes tomorrow, it'll all have been a waste of time. I want to hasten to assure you that that would not be the case because it is always in your interest to exercise the, the brain muscle. Uh, just like the, the other muscles of the body, with use it gets stronger. And if we are going to be heading into a very grim depression, then we're going to need every ounce of brain power that we have to think our way through it. And so that is why I say that it is uh, always valuable to wrestle with new ideas. I may, be, I may be preaching to the converted on that topic too, but I wanted to make sure that was clear. Now, uh, two general topic or, or side topics before I get to a discussion of the, an advanced discussion of the basis and uh, contango and backwardation. The first one is, some people have also said, well, if the gold price can be manipulated, and of course the evidence suggests that it is being manipulated, cannot also the basis be manipulated? In which case, why should we bother trying to learn from it or understand it? So I want to deal with that uh, at the moment uh, before I continue. Uh, Occam's razor would suggest that you shouldn't look for a more complicated explanation of something if it doesn't exist. Uh, professor, I think in that same essay pointed out uh, that there may not be an actual conspiracy between the government and the hedge fund operators. The hedge fund operators may simply be intelligent enough to have come to the realization that government would be delighted if the price of gold and silver did not rise too quickly and therefore they knew they could expect the government's tacit support with uh, central bank sales and the whole thing has worked out uh, wonderfully for both parties, not for the rest of us, of course, but the, uh, the same thing, I think, applies to concerns that the basis may be manipulated or subject to manipulation. Uh, I think, I can't remember who said it, it might have been Clausewitz talking about war, but he was uh, saying that often politicians think that war is a surgical scalpel to accomplish very fine aims, when in fact generals and soldiers know that war is a blunt instrument. Well, I think you can say the same thing about any sort of manipulative activity. Those who are in the market know that it is not, it, it may be an art, the people that are better at timing the market than others have obviously honed their skills to an art, but I don't think that even they would say it's a surgical procedure. The market is a messy place, unpredictable, and it's difficult to accomplish very fine aims uh, that you might have set out to do. And the way this applies to potential manipulation of the basis is that here we have the normal uh, situation. Uh, there's a certain level of contango, obviously it's shrinking, but uh, some certain level of contango in between the spot gold price and the nearest futures month. And uh, suppression of the, of the spot gold price, as I said, is a, is a relatively simple uh, 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 procedure uh, done by simply dumping, dumping physical gold on the market. But if the government were now expected to also manipulate the basis such that backwardation didn't occur or was uh, held at a certain level, uh, we, uh, we see that they would have to do two things. First, they would have to push down the price of um, uh, the near-term uh, futures contract to stay at a certain 
level from the gold price that they're controlling, but they'd also have to make sure that they were pushing it up as needed to uh, keep the contango a certain size. So they're actually going to be, they would be working against themselves with the unpredictable uh, activities of the speculators coming in to muddy the waters. So I think you can see now, instead of a simple downward pressure, now it's a high wire balancing act where the government would be trying to uh, maintain a certain basis, which is why I think that the deeper you look into that kind of a theory, the deeper you realize that it would be extremely uh, difficult for the government to, uh, to manage. Now, uh, the other topic that I wanted to mention uh, before I go further is that there have been some issues about the measurement of backwardation and the detection of backwardation. <coughs> some of what I say overlaps with what uh, Sandeep said, but uh, uh, one of the things that Tom Zabel was uh, overly, perhaps overly concerned about, but definitely it was uh, making very, very cautious about predicting uh, or about um, uh, agreeing with backwardation was that the, uh, the true spot price, part of the equation, was difficult to accurately determine. Now, I am, again, I'm not active in the gold markets at a wholesale level myself, but uh, it's my understanding that because the London fix is the only window, the only true window we get into the bullion market, and that it happens only twice a day, and it's sometimes several hours delayed, it is difficult to compare it to the near-term futures month with the kind of accuracy that might be necessary for fine-tuning a, uh, a, a measurement of, of basis appearing, of backwardation appearing or not appearing. Uh, and that, uh, uh, that was one of his concerns. Now, the professor suggested, and I think others might have suggested as well, that a simple way to deal with that is a moving average to get some sort of approximation of the basis uh, level at any given time. That may be a solution. Uh, there is also the issue when you set out to actually do the math and calculate it after you have all your inputs that you have to allow for the fact that uh, the near-term contract month, of course, is gradually winding down. And at some point, you have to make a uh, determination to replace it, uh, replace it with uh, the next month, and you have to obviously stick to a consistent pattern. There's a certain amount of noise from the activities that take place near the expiration of uh, contract months as professional traders are moving. So it's, in other words, I don't want to say easy in theory, difficult in practice, because the theory is correct. All I'm pointing out is that these are some of the things that I think are muddying the waters right now for uh, there being a general consensus reach. But considering that we're on the cutting edge of uh, the science here, that shouldn't be surprising, nor do I think it should be uh, disturbing to anybody or discouraging. Uh, the um, Sorry, that was a slide that went with that. Oh yes, I guess the final uh, comment I'll make about that is some of you may have heard a very useful analogy about, uh, I forget what it was in reference to, some scientific phenomenon where it was saying that if you look at the, if you look at the coastline of England from 10 miles up in the air, it's like a straight line. As you get closer, of course, or the lower scale map you use, uh, the more it, there are uh, uh, fjords and such, and it almost gets to the point where you can never really draw a proper coastline. I think that uh, the same sort of analogy can be applied to trying to sort out uh, some of the issues with measuring the basis. Now, uh, I'll say something about uh, the idea of local backwardization. Uh, uh, sorry. Backwardation, I didn't, uh, there's a typo in the uh, handout as well. It's a good thing that reminded me. Uh, making this up in a hurry. I mean, every time I say backwardization, it's just a brain freeze. What I mean to be saying is backwardization. Not, uh, I'm not trying to overly complicate uh, matters here. Uh, some people have pointed out the difference between, well, there are different types of backwardation. 
And an example I saw in November when the supplies were very, very tight for the physical metal was that in the Northwest Territorial Mint in uh, uh, Washington State, uh, you could see, uh, I don't remember the exact figures, but it was something along these lines. Uh, if you wanted delivery of the metal today, you were going to pay a 9% premium over spot. If you want delivery in three months, you don't have to pay a 5% premium over spot, and six months, even less premium over spot. And some people point out, well, there's backwardation right there. How can there be any question uh, in that local market? There's proof that it exists because the mint itself that's, that's manufacturing it is being faced with this shortage. Now, other people have pointed out, well, no, really, uh, you can't use local. Uh, another example, of course, would be eBay, where they aggregate the prices and, uh, and you can see how much of a premium over spot it is. Other people have said, no, really the only market you can use is the 400 ounce gold bar market, which is a global market. And uh, I would tend to agree with the latter argument that you need to use the global market because it is a, a, a completely interconnected uh, marketplace uh, in this day and age. That's another issue that's been uh, clouding, the, uh, clouding the topic. And uh, finally, there has been uh, some discussion about the fact that well, if it weren't for interest rates being as low as they are, they're a component of the calculation of the cost of carry, then we wouldn't even be close to backwardation now, so really, it's a false signal. Well, uh, I don't agree with that at all, because really, I think as someone else has pointed out, I don't remember the uh, uh, person on the internet, it might have been uh, Braun uh, uh, Szczecki, uh, that's confusing cause and effect. In fact, both the low interest rates and the uh, appearance of backwardation are uh, symptoms of a monetary system in distress. Uh, I think Sandy and have been talking about that as well uh, yesterday. Now, with that, uh, those preliminary items uh, out of the way, uh, oh, yes, I'll also mention, I guess, that uh, our, where I work right now, which is uh, the Boyan Management Group, we, we actually are now in the market of selling physical bars. We, we run a mutual fund in Canada that's available globally, but we're also in the market of selling physical bars for the last six months or so to worldwide investors because of the demand. They want to actually have a registered uh, uh, segregated allocated bar held for them or shipped to them. And we have noticed uh, as well that the kilogram bars are for gold. That's the smallest size we sell. And of course, those are what are in demand. The, as the wealthy of the world who didn't own gold before are starting to move to it. And we've noticed that there is a, um, that's another measure of um, uh, backwardation. We notice that there is up to a 1% premium over spot just because of the tightness of supply and the inability to keep up with the uh, uh, minting of them. Uh, now I can get on to the, uh, the main event. Uh, I'm going to uh, walk through the example. This was from the professor's essay, um, The Gold Basis and Interest. Uh, from 2007. I thought it might be useful to actually walk through step by step from the perspective of each of the uh, participants uh, and then I'm going to do a simple mathematical example and then show you the, uh, the more advanced alternative, uh, alternative uh, uh, basis competition. We know that uh, the farmer's actions are pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. He'll, uh, he'll harvest in the fall and sell whatever he didn't lock in forward price to the, uh, to the grain elevator. Uh, the crop goes, the new crop goes into the spring, and during the summer he'll be forward selling a portion of his, uh, of his crop uh, to lock in a price again to the elevator operator. I think that uh, the forward sale, I'm not an expert on this, but I think that the forward sales are still used simply because uh, if the farmer were to use 
a futures contract, you'd be subject to mark to market, and it would be a, an expense that uh, you wouldn't be prepared to pay if the market moved against them in the meantime. What happens in the elevator? Well, that's uh, pretty uh, obvious as well. It's if the elevator operator is timed things right, it's emptying just as the harvest is about to come in, fills very quickly, and then gradually uh, empties out over the course of the year. The basis, as we know, also was uh, would be very narrow. Uh, because it is, of course, predicting nearly a shortage uh, just before the harvest is about to come in, and then rises very rapidly as the grain elevators fill up with the harvest because now uh, storage space is at a premium. And then gradually the basis will fall during the year. Now, uh, the elevator operator uh, in the cash grain market, he will be taking delivery of the forward sales from the farmers. He'll complete, be completing the additional uh, cash sales and then he will gradually start selling the grain to meet demand over the year. And the final phase, this is where the actual profitability of his operation comes in, he will be offsetting his, op his, uh, his cash actions in the futures market and taking his profit as he does so. Uh, not here, of course, but uh, small profit uh, in the winter and gradually a rising profit as the, uh, uh, as the uh, basis fall and he's able to exit his position of profit. Now I'm going to walk through this mathematically, make sure that it's clear. And by the way, uh, I, I've said to hold your questions, but I may ask questions of you to make sure that you're understanding it. I won't pick on anybody in particular, but I'll ask the general question as we go along to make sure that uh, people are seeing the math. So this is two-leg two arbitrage with four steps. Uh, first step being that, uh, let's say uh, the contango in, uh, in uh, wheat is 5%, uh, annualized 5% at the time it's bought. The transaction is going to look like that. Uh, $100, I, I didn't look up the price of a bushel of wheat, and we're just using round figures for ease of uh, understanding. And he sells the futures. And assuming that over the course of the year, the average annualized size of the basis at the time that he unwinds the position uh, is 2%, then uh, now I've used, I've deliberately uh, made the price lower to emphasize the professor's point that the elevator operator doesn't care what happens to the price of wheat after he's made the contract, he's only looking at the size of the basis. So as you can see here, obviously the, the elevator operator took a loss on the uh, cash position in the uh, grain, but he more than made it up with the profit when he covered his short position in the futures market. Now. Uh, can everybody see, or can anybody tell me what his profit is going to be, his net profit is going to be just in dollar terms uh, based on this? Any, any brave volunteers? I was going to say, we're already in a very, very uh, select group here, so not only are there no stupid questions, but there are no stupid answers even. So uh, if anybody would like to give that a, if anybody would like to test their, uh, uh, their mental uh, uh, fitness and uh, tell me what his profit was in this uh, situation. Oh, three percent. Yes, sorry, I meant I meant in uh, dollar terms. If anybody wants to, three dollars That's exactly right. Three dollars and sixteen cents. Now, can everybody see how we get that? He lost eight dollars in the cash wheat uh, market, but he made uh, the difference between one hundred and five and ninety three eighty four. And so that profit minus eight dollars, so it would have been eleven to sixteen. He made after he covered his short. And I'm sure I don't need to point out here that the, uh, I'm leaving out all commissions and other uh, transaction costs. Well, now we get into the more complicated issue, which, and this, just to remind you why we're slogging through this uh, uh, example, since I don't think anybody's going to go into the elevator operator business uh, for wheat. Uh, this does apply directly to gold and silver, as I'm going to show you very shortly. 
but this is the critical aspect of this kind of an operation that makes it possible for you or I to profit from it through our gold and silver bullion investment. So, when the, when the elevator operator, obviously he doesn't just deal in a single uh, uh, grain, he, he deals in wheat and corn and other items as well. Well, um, there's a certain natural level of profitability for a given commodity, and competition would suggest that prices will adjust until, for the elevator operator, they are all equally profitable and he simply chooses from them you know, based on his uh, overall business model. But from time to time, we know that weather and other events are going to distort the natural level of profitability for a given agricultural commodity. And at that point, the elevator operator has to make a decision. Uh, he can't simply say, well, I'm only going to hold wheat and nothing else and never even look at it, otherwise he'd be driven out of business by the uh, operators that do look at all possibilities for profit. He has to make an opportunity. He has to decide if the uh, competing commodity has uh, developed uh, pricing characteristics such that uh, the basis is going to be more profitable to buy uh, than to refill his elevator with uh, wheat again for next season, then he has to decide whether he should go ahead and do that. And the way he decides is he's got to look at the, uh, the incremental costs. Once he does decide to go ahead, uh, he would accelerate his cash sales, presumably I can't say I understand exactly the working, but presumably so that he's in a position to snap up the new commodity, the alternate commodity, as the harvest come in, he's able to offer better terms, better deals immediately for delivery, and fill his elevator with the more profitable one. And uh, at the same time, he'll be unwinding his futures hedges more quickly than he would have otherwise. And uh, as I said, this will allow him to do the trick of switching uh, commodities. Now, uh, as I said, he will give up some of the profit that he was forecasting, some of that $3.16 he will have to give up, and he will hope that he'll be making it up and more with the, uh, with the new commodity. So let's look at the math on that. So this is now four-legged arbitrage. The, uh, uh, let's, let's say for sake of argument that at the time, halfway through the season, when he reaches this conclusion from reading the, reading the weather reports, only $1.29 of, of his estimated $3.16 that he was forecasting of profits has been realized. Now, the... Uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, that's awfully small. I'll, I'll read the numbers out here so you can see it. Assume that the uh, profit on uh, corn would be $3.81 were he to have done the same thing. Well, his decision has to be, can he... Uh, so that's incrementally at $0.65 cents better. Now his question has to be, can I unwind my other hedges such that uh, I, make, uh, I don't lose more than $0.65? Cents? So, for example, if uh, he unwinds them but ends up only realizing $1.20 of the $1.87 that's remaining, then he would not, if he forecasts that, then he would not switch commodities because the, uh, uh, he would lose $0.67. Cents. That would more than wipe out the profit he was going to make. He would have to stand pat. So I throw that in there just to show you the, the opposite side, but now I'll do a mathematical example where it is in his favor and he would make the change. So we'll stay with the uh, wheat, uh, the numbers that we've already seen except that he was expecting to sell the uh, wheat for $92, but because he's forcing it out the door, he's obviously having to give discounts, he ends up uh, making less. So he's only going to realize $2.14 rather than $3.16, but he's hoping to make it up by the uh, greater profitability of the corn. Assuming there's a 6% annualized contango in the corn, then uh, we'll just make it an arbitrary $100 and $100.06 for the futures. 
and uh, if he realizes uh, these kind of prices, then he is going to uh, realize $5 for the corn trade, and after netting out the loss here, he comes out 82 cents ahead. Now, can uh, you see how I got that? He, uh, he made um, uh, $14 on the cash, he lost $9 on the uh, futures, uh, $2 is what he missed uh, there, but his profit was um, greater by $1.84, leaving $0.82 cents incremental profit. Now, the happy news at the end of all of this, I've uh, put you to uh, another place, the happy news at the end of all of this is that we are all elevator operators now in the gold and silver futures, uh, or the gold and silver market. And thankfully, we do not need to work through this, but this is a very, very useful framework for explaining exactly why we don't. Imagine a world where, uh, I mean, you don't have to imagine, this is the world. Unlike the agricultural uh, situation, there's a continuous harvest going on because there is gold and silver out there more than any of us can possibly afford to buy in our whole lifetimes. There is uh, the sales to the consumers, the, you know, the, the sale of the finished product won't start until we are back on some sort of gold standard. And uh, there are no barriers to entry, or as Warren Buffett likes to say, no moats around the elevator operator business for gold and silver. Why? As the, profit, uh, as the professor uh, pointed out, it's very, very easy to build your own elevator. You dig a hole in the ground and there it is. It took you half an hour. There's no capital outlay for you besides what you spend on the uh, gold and silver. But uh, for those of you who haven't uh, read uh, the professor's comments on this or any of Tom Zavala's comments on it, this is four-legged arbitrage. You could run uh, a, uh, a gold-silver uh, alternating operation this way, but why would you unless you were concerned about keeping track of your money in, in dollars? And uh, as we know, a wise man uh, reckons his net worth in gold ounces. You don't need four legs. You don't even need two legs. One-legged arbitrage will suffice. And by that, I mean, because the, the harvest season is, is almost continual, ongoing, and may happen for many years yet, you simply use the basis as a guideline, buying the higher basis metal and stopping your purchase of the lower basis metal, assuming, let's say, you're doing a monthly purchase plan. Now, some of, uh, some of you were here at the last uh, one of I've heard this argument, although maybe not in this depth, but it does work. And uh, the research, the, the theory was uh, 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 articulated by the professor. And uh, Tom Zabel's uh, um, back, uh, a back testing of the variation in the basis has demonstrated it. And uh, he, he was confident in, I'm, I'm, putting, uh, I'm putting words in his mouth a little bit here, but um, he was, uh, he was putting it uh, at a minimum of a, 5%, a 3 to 5% uh, incremental difference. And what I mean by that is, if uh, he, was, he was calling it augmentation of your accumulation. And uh, he, what he was doing was comparing it. If you, if you were making a monthly purchase, now many people in this room probably already have finished their uh, accumulation and they're simply trading and extra profits are maybe going into metal. But whether, whether you're saving uh, right out of your income or you're uh, merely directing profits into metal, assuming you had previously been using a naive strategy of, of buying, let's say, uh, well, my example here is I think uh, 
enough uh, 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 buying 100 ounces of gold uh, each month and 6,000 ounces of silver each month or year or whatever period you want to do it based over a year. Uh, just splitting the money evenly and I'm assuming here a, a 60 to 1 uh, silver to gold ratio. The effects of instead using one-legged arbitrage using the basis as your guide buying the higher, putting 100% of the money into the higher basis metal and none into the lower basis metal at that point the effects are uh, impressive over the uh, over a 24-month period. Uh, if you're buying a certain, uh, you know, sorry, I said that wrong. I'm assuming a two-year period here that you're accumulating that much. But there's the uh, there's the results. Uh, that much of a uh, that much of an increase uh, uh, at a 4% uh, rate. And of course, if you think that the uh, if you think that the silver uh, gold ratio is going to fall dramatically, like I do, I'm not sure that I can. Uh, completely justify that to everybody's satisfaction, then the extra silver that you're accumulating will end up being even more gold uh, and you get that extra benefit from it. Now, um, I think uh, those of you who are traders in the room also uh, will see the added application of this. This is a very, you might say, boring, safe approach to it. It's almost like making yourself a money market fund that consists only of gold and silver and that is paying interest uh, in extra units of gold and silver. Uh, and of course you have to not be worried about reckoning your wealth in dollars, you have to be measuring your wealth in gold ounces uh, for this to uh, be satisfying to you. But I think that the traders in the room can very quickly see the applications of this and I know that uh, uh, Tom has been offering a service, I have not made use of it myself, but he has been offering a service where he attempts to uh, give trading signals. It may be similar to the proprietary strategy that uh, Sandeep is using. Uh, where uh, he is trying to get buy signals for the uh, metals where you could make a leveraged bet uh, using simply options or the gold or silver ETF and make extra profits that way to layer on top of a naive strategy of, or I mean a, a, an augmenting strategy of uh, one-legged arbitrage to get the actual physical metal. But that is where the, uh, that is where the value uh, of a good theory properly applied can take you. Now I've covered a lot of different uh, I've covered a lot of different topics here. Um, there, uh, and, I, and I thank you for being patient with your questions and patient for my walking through the uh, elevator example. But uh, it really excites me that uh, we get to take such a shortcut and uh, cheat and uh, in a way and uh, get the benefits of that because of the special nature of monetary quantities and because of this paper money system that has been forced on us. It is nice to be able to extract a small measure of revenge and I uh, hope that uh, for those of you who have never considered this before, it's now um, will pay you back uh, many times for the time and the effort and the money you've spent uh, to be here. Uh, I will uh, now gladly take any questions on this or uh, any, else, any other issues that I've raised. Oh, I have, uh, I meant to say, I, I prepared handouts uh, just of some of the major slides. Uh, if anybody's interested, I can make you copies uh, afterwards for your, for your reference. And in times of speculation, then, um, can we really object it? Or can, should we then go with a lower reputation method? Is this the same effect now, or what have we done? Sorry, I can't. Um, In you, times of degradation, right? Do we do that? Oh, well, yeah, yes. Excellent question. Places, or e can we no, uh, excellent question. Uh, 
I think the proper, and the professor can correct me here if I'm wrong, but I think the proper interpretation of uh, this when we are being faced occasionally or continuously sometimes with backwardation, you simply buy the metal that, that still has the higher, um, sorry, let me, let me walk through this verbally to make sure I'm saying it right. In a contango situation, you're, you're, you're buying the higher basis where the, the contango is higher. And you would still buy, it, it would, it, it's sort of like a, uh, I forget the mathematical term, it's like a, uh, an integer scale. You're still looking for the higher metal. In other words, the metal that, that is less in backwardation than the other one. And that's right. Yes. Yes. And so you would still do that. Although, of course, if it does turn out that we dip into deeper and deeper and more and more continuous backwardation, then you know the end is coming soon anyhow. But uh, at least until if it, you know, if, if someone keeps arbitraging away the uh, riskless uh, profits and keeps bumping us back into contango, then it's still available to the rest of us to, uh, to buy. But yeah, excellent question, uh, Rhino. One of the things that I wanted to mention, I didn't build it into the uh, presentation, but uh, this, this may end up uh, provoking more argument than anything else I've said, but uh, I do think that, I do think that, uh, although it may be grim, I do think that Western civilization will pull through. And uh, I think that's simply because there are enough people, I said this in Australia and I'll repeat it here, there are enough people that believe in the American dream or what is now the global dream of working hard and lifting yourself up out of the class that you were born into, into a higher class. Enough people believe in that dream that they are literally willing to work themselves to death to try and achieve it. And unwittingly, these people are going to be the real saviors of Western civilization because they are the ones that will keep trying to run their small businesses or large businesses despite all the odds against them and, and you know, the, the it, I think that given half a chance, as the better ideas spread, and they are spreading, that real bills will spring up, and however difficult the transition might be, I do think that we have a, a good chance to get through it. Um, more I can say on that, but I don't want to get too far off. On the smallest scale we for many years are fully because we are so fixed on this financial products that we think the world is 90% financial. And another question, not that related, but how is your business doing? How much uh, more gold are you selling now? Oh, well, yeah, I can tell you a little bit. I mean, uh, what? Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't mention anything in the introduction, but I mean, what I, what I do for a living now, I'm very happy to say, is uh, uh, I sell gold for a living. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, the mutual fund uh, that I work for in Canada. Uh, it's called Bullion Management Group, as you can see from my business cards, and we are an ordinary mutual fund. I don't know in the rest of the world, in America and uh, Canada, mutual funds are just vehicles for holding stocks. I'm sure they're equivalent. They might call it something else uh, other parts of the world, but they're designed to be as easy as possible for even uh, unsophisticated investors to be comfortable owning. And of course, in the past, most mutual funds have been either stocks or bonds or some combination of them. Uh, we are just the bars of gold, silver, and platinum. And you can ask me, not, not negating anything that the professor said, but you can ask me afterwards uh, why it is that we're holding uh, platinum. Uh, it, has to do, has to do, it has to do with actually a regulatory uh, issue where we, uh, we weren't allowed to uh, hold uh, uh, just gold and silver, but it's another matter. 
However, uh, sales are very, very good. I think a year ago, uh, roughly when I was here, uh, our, uh, our um, daily net inflows were probably about a quarter million dollars a day. Uh, now they're over half a million dollars a day. The fund is growing. I mean, since I started, the fund is uh, grown from about 90 million Canadian, uh, so US dollars at the time it was maybe 80 million or 75 million, to about a quarter of a million dollars uh, US, I think, if you translated it, uh, yeah, close to a quarter million. Uh, sorry, a quarter billion, I should say, uh, 250 million. And uh, more and more advisors are, a lot of the time it's a case of the client pestering their advisor because they've read about us, and the advisor who doesn't really believe in gold, but certainly believes in keeping the client happy at all costs, uh, will put the, uh, put the client in it. We have some advisors that did seek us out and put in heavy weightings, and of course other advisors need a bit of convincing, and that's my job, I go and uh, harangue them about uh, why they absolutely need gold. And we're very, very easy for the advisors to use. This is, this, is a good, this is a piece of good news for gold in general because we are getting gold ownership out there. Uh, I guess I could say a bit about our fund. Uh, you may be interested in the actual details. We are doing the real thing. We are buying the actual bars off the, uh, through Scotia Makata, right off the wholesale uh, bullion markets of the world. And uh, we take delivery of them, and they're segregated, allocated. Scotiabank is uh, uh, where we, uh, they're the trustee of the metal. Uh, and uh, we don't use any paper substitutes, we don't leverage our operation, we don't um, uh, do any active trading to try and uh, make any money that way. We are just uh, a vehicle for people. You see, especially in the retirement accounts, or registered accounts, where it's difficult to, uh, or impossible to own physical volume, we're allowing people to do that. And as I mentioned before, uh, because of demand, we actually started selling worldwide now uh, the physical bars, uh, kilogram bars, you know, all the way up to uh, 400 ounce bars of gold and the 1,000 ounce bars of silver. And uh, people, for those of you in the room who may already have your fill of local coins uh, that you keep at home or, uh, or you know, a Swiss bank uh, arrangement where you have some bars in Switzerland, uh, unfortunately, one of the only uh, defenses we have against arbitrary government action is additional diversification. Canada, uh, you know, I can't, uh, I can't make any promises about our government. We have a fairly good reputation, but um, uh, if you want to diversify some of your gold holdings into Canada, that's what our uh, BARS program does. We will, we will store them for you, again, in, in complete segregated allocated storage. You get an actual bullion deed that says, this is the gold bar I own, made by Johnson Matthews, serial number such and such, weight, exact weight, this much, and this is evidence of ownership, and you can come and claim it at any time. Uh, or have it ship it to you at any time, but we will store it for you. So if those of you who are interested in moving uh, some of your uh, uh, gold holdings into Canada, we are, uh, we are available uh, for that. But uh, sales of those, of course, uh, we are developing a worldwide dealer network at present. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't know uh, whether we have a dealer or several dealers in Europe yet, but uh, uh, there, will be, there will be one near you and uh, we, can, we can deal with you anywhere. Regulations, of course, uh, are tight. We, uh, by law, we have to treat you as an assumed terrorist and uh, money launderer. But uh, once you once you get the paperwork filled out, uh, there's no problem, and you can go ahead and buy it. Gold bars are actually not uh, uh, gold, silver bars. We discovered are actually not a uh, regulated security. So, for now, fortunately, the regulators uh, we don't need the permission. You know, the lawyers have, and the regulators have uh, made pass their judgment on it. So. We're, we're too strange for them to uh, even consider us to be in the same category as stocks and bonds. Mm -hmm. so we're flipping the last year, oh. the bond has another number. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, so yes, and I, and I guess I'll mention what I said in Australia as well. Uh, we, um, uh, 
there are people who, whether because they have skill at it or maybe because they don't have skill at it, you know, not to make fun of anybody uh, present, I mean, I've made this mistake myself, but uh, they think gold bullion is great and therefore a penny gold stock or some sort of gold stock would be even better because there's all the leverage built into it. Well, um, we also do, it's not exactly a product, but we also offer you a means if you're interested to have leverage, built-in leverage, uh, to the price of gold and silver without uh, the risk of a small mining startup or of borrowing money yourself. And that is that our company, although not public yet, we ultimately will be a pub our operating company that runs our mutual fund, although not public yet, we ultimately will be a public company. Uh, when I joined the company, uh, I bought shares uh, at 65 cents. We were issuing shares at 65 cents. And uh, of course, a mutual fund is a wonderful business model because as the underlying assets that you manage increase in value, the profitability of the company increases. And as new money comes into the fund, even if the assets were staying still, the profitability of the company increases. Uh, and when you have both working in your favor, of course, one feeds off the other in the case of the metals going up in value. Uh, it's an extremely valuable uh, business model. So in two years, uh, we're now selling shares at $2. Uh, and we've hardly had uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of growth I was expecting, but uh, it is a leverage play. As I said, we're a private company, but if you're interested, please talk to me afterwards and uh, uh, can, uh, buy some stock. Yes? There's a couple of clothes and Trading at premium. Yes. 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 Actually, I was just talking about that at lunch. Um, I, when I talk to the investment advisors and I point out to them the difference between our custodial arrangements, Boyan Management Group's custodial arrangements, versus the Street Tracks Gold ETF, and I say, here are the issues that the the GLD themselves admit could be problems. And I say, and if you don't believe that the custodial arrangements are an issue, see, you can't tell when you look at BMG because as a mutual fund, we always trade at net asset value. We are valued daily based on the London fix for the metal, the afternoon fix for the uh, three metals. The Central Fund of Canada and the Central Gold Trust, uh, which is a, a run by the same group, which is Pure Gold, if you look at the net asset values of those, and they publish them on their website, yes, they are trading. Uh, the latest I saw for the central fund, which is half gold, half silver, they're trading at, I think, somewhere around 11 or 13%, something like that. And the, the pure gold trust, the last I checked, which was a week ago, was trading at 30% over net asset value. I think a more normal range for it is about 15 to 20. I know, you would think that if you can synthetically replicate central fund, and you, you could since the launch of the silver ETF in 2006, you would think that if anything, it ought to go to a discount because it used to be the only game in town for buying physical silver, and now uh, uh, the silver ETF is available, but instead it's under premium. I think that merely, and, and it's on good volume too, these aren't simple you know, day after day of, of decent trading volume. This is not an anomaly. I think that that is the proof for people who want to actively trade in the gold, physical gold market. That's the proof that they trust those far more than they trust the gold ETF. Uh, and our vehicle, of course, we are not a trading vehicle, our, our fund, there's a penalty if you sell it in six months, a 3% 3, 3 penalty, just enough to discourage uh, people trying to actively uh, trade it. So we're really not competing directly with central fund for traders. Uh, but, of course, for people who are trying to hold it long term, why on earth would you take a 15% hit right off the bat when you can buy asset, net asset value, you know, plus whatever your broker, you know, small commission your broker may charge 
sure, our holding costs are longer, but we're not going to. I mean, this, this crisis is not going to last 20 years or even five years, I don't think. Uh, but I think that's, I think that's the uh, explanation for why that premium is there. We, our custodial arrangements are essentially the same as central funds. We model ourselves after them in that respect uh, in order to give the people that kind of level of comfort. Does Mr. Barishev believe in this? Oh, the uh, one-legged arbitrage. Yeah. Well, I know that he reads your work. I have not ever discussed this aspect of it with him. I mentioned to our uh, chief um, operating officer who, who handles the daily purchase of the metals that uh, uh, it, this theory may be possible, and it may be possible to um, uh, offer a sort of a money market gold fund, uh, not, not along the same lines of the, of the vehicle you're uh, talking about, uh, Sandy, but uh, where um, we're, we're not attempting to write uh, calls against it, but simply to accumulate slowly. But uh, it may be, and so I know he's, uh, and, I, and I made him aware of uh, Tom's work as well. Uh, but whether they um, whether they followed it up or not, I mean, I know our company. We're a um, we're a small and rapidly growing company, and I know that a lot of our uh, effort over the last two years actually was in trying to get the bullion bars program launched because we knew people. A lot of people did say. Why they got platinum in there? Why can't? Or why can't I just have pure gold? Or you know, I don't even believe in silver. You know, never mind platinum. And so the bullion bars program—it's much more cost-effective and also easier for us to market this worldwide uh, when it's an unregulated entity rather than a security. Uh, it's much cheaper for us to offer the bars program, where you can tailor make your own precious metals holding rather than trying to have four mutual funds—one for gold, one for silver, one for platinum, and a Neapolitan ice cream one that you know is the main one now. Uh, just because the, our economy is a scale, we are not a huge fidelity or whatever, you know, the lawyer costs uh, eat you alive. <laughs> not, 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 to mention the, uh, not to mention the actual uh, uh, transaction costs. We're a victim of our own success too, in that the big, the big advisors with the big clients came in early. Uh, now we're getting a lot of the more moderate-sized advisors with the smaller clients, and actually our, our ticket size of the purchase is going down, but we're faced, I think it's a flat rate to commission the, uh, that we're charged by uh, the World Bank of Canada that processes the transactions for us. So, uh, so it, it's a funny thing, we're a victim of our own success, but I have presented it to them and they're aware of it. And uh, I know that uh, as Tom gets closer to a commercial, commercially viable uh, product, then I certainly intend to uh, try and get them together. Is this augmented uh, by one arbitrage? Is this an hypothesis or it's based on uh, paper trading? Oh, I, I think what Tom did was, if I remember, when it was two years ago when he presented his evidence and he said, here's what the average uh, uh, gain would have been, uh, three, three to five percent. Uh, but I mean, he's, he's, he's hamstrung by, I think, a number of, of things in trying to get better data because of the cost of getting, you know, to his satisfaction, the cost of getting the true spot price. And you see, I think here, Unlike in the issue of backwardation, determining whether it exists, you know, that's one thing. You don't necessarily need to be as precise, but I think for actually executing a strategy like this, the bullion banks, the 11 or 12 bullion banks in the world, they control that true spot price very, very tightly because it's their trading advantage as they operate in the bullion markets, either with each other or with the purchasers. And so they're able to uh, uh, make an extra you know, half percent or whatever just based on that knowledge. And so I think for a high price, you can get a feed into that market, but I think it is quite a high price, prohibitively high for most, uh, you know, any, anybody but a, probably a large hedge fund. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe they have that as well, but uh, 
And so I think that it's been difficult. My understanding, anyhow, is one of the one of the obstacles is just monetary. I mean, uh, you know, for the for the large expense to be able to check it exactly uh, can't can't be done uh, can't be done at present. I think I shouldn't speak for Tom, but uh, he's. Uh, uh, I know he's written a fair bit about it, uh, so you know if people are interested. You can, uh, which I think is mostly uh, freely available on his website. So feel free to check his uh, check his logic. Well, thank you very much for your uh, attention, and uh, as I said, don't hesitate to uh, ask me any further questions by uh, email if you're curious. Thank you, Nathan. I think we've gotten uh, over the last couple of days some of the best basis and clear explanations that we've had here. And um, Nathan and Sandeep and uh, <laughs> I forget here. Uh, <laughs> oh, Rudy! Rudy was so clear. But Rudy's thing was, came in so clear. It was. It was transparent. I thought. God, it's just something else. But I, I, I personally really appreciate the clarity of the uh, all the presentations. It was just like it was it was like a chord, a, a chord with three notes that just formed perfectly. So um, I guess if uh, Anton, what do you think we should do with the uh, the rest of the afternoon? This is this is we can just finish it off here. Let's just. Open the floor to any questions? Yeah. yeah, further questions, I guess, about anything that any of the speakers yeah. have said, and then they can answer as uh, as appropriate. Uh, okay, then, if, if your company is going to be public, then they will be naive, maybe, on the account. <coughs> I believe that you have to market profits to market under the IAs and the IFRS. Uh, well, I mean, I guess maybe I should make sure I'm um, explaining it properly. I mean, the mutual fund exists, and it doesn't really matter whether the company that's managing the mutual fund is a private or public company. That's a separate issue. Uh, the mutual fund itself, um, uh, you know, will report. Uh, I mean, we we don't actually have the only t um, most of the money as it comes in, it goes into the metal. We obviously keep you know about two percent or something to meet uh, expenses and redemptions if they come up, but. Uh, we're not actually trading the gold and silver, so I don't think there's an accounting issue there. If that if that's your question, the fact that the company that manages it uh, moves from private to public doesn't um, uh, doesn't actually trigger any. Uh, I mean, you know, we pay taxes and you know on our profits whether we're public or private. And the, the holdings that this mutual fund is holding is basically not taxed, even if it appreciates. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, no, I don't think, no, we're not, the, the unit holders didn't pay, I know they didn't pay any taxes last year, uh, even though the metal, uh, you know, the metals rose in price, it's, it's, it's based on the trading within the mutual funds, so we have the advantage, you know, Warren Buffett also said that's a wonderful situation where you can be in a company where you get to defer taxes because you get to hang on to the use of the money longer, and we have that advantage too. I mean, I guess I shouldn't, you know, I'm, I'll say, <laughs> read, read the prospectus, I guess, for the, or consult your tax attorney for the true answer, but uh, I think, you know, that's, uh, it's two separate things, so whether or not we go public, it's just good for the, the shareholders of the operating company, Bullion Management Group Incorporated, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, uh, better for them, obviously, if they're a public company rather than a private, because the, the share price appreciates uh, because of the public uh, uh, liquidity uh, premium, but... Uh,
days. Yes, and, and from what I know from the coin stores, the 100 ounce bars, the standard retail uh, size for investors, uh, are still tight. They're still difficult to uh, obtain. Um, the actually, it's strange, the, the, paradoxically, the coins, the, um, uh, the, uh, the coins in the smaller bars, uh, the mints, I guess, have kept up with it, or it's possible that the, uh, the coin store operators themselves wrongly stockpiled and made up the story about there being a shortage to try and recover their uh, losses when the price fell uh, so dramatically in silver. Uh, but I can't, you know, I don't know whether that's true or not, that's just a theory. But, but yes, the latest I've heard is the 100 ounce bars are still tight. I as mean, far as you see it, there is today, there is no backwardation in gold and no backwardation in silver. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, from yes, from from what I've seen, it's it's calm. The markets for both metals are calmer and more orderly now than they were six months ago, when people were very very scared. What is your expectation for for the immediate future? Say the month of April and the month of May. Well. Uh, as I said, I know that our own sales have uh, ticked higher. Uh, I mean, it's coming from a variety of sources, not only new people buying, but existing advisors doubling their weighting, you know, from five to 10 or from 10 to 20. Uh, but how quickly that's going to, I mean, it, there's a seasonality in the industry in terms of retail advisors. Uh, I mean, a lot of them just simply go away in May uh, and don't come back until September because their books are so, uh, their clients are so well managed, I guess, is uh, you know, the term for it, that they, nothing happens in the summer. So it's, from my end, it's entirely possible it might slow down. Now, I don't know that necessarily applies to the large uh, institutional buyers who are on the job all year, uh, or, or more of the year than a retail advisor. But I think that factor alone would suggest to me that unless things get a lot worse in the headlines in terms of other big institutions going under or other, another crisis developing or maybe a bankruptcy of you know, another uh, major or somewhat major country, unless we get another huge shock to the system somehow, I could see it being calm for another two, three months. Uh, but again, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm the last person to be asking, I guess, about a, you know, a trading strategy or, or you know, what, I, what I think short-term results are going to be because I just don't, don't trade uh, very much. Is it fair to say that if there is backwardation and say the government or the central bank or some bullion banks want to fight it, then they could let the price rise and this would work off backwardation. Is, is that a fair uh, well, I, I suppose, um, uh, but the problem is that, that's, that's why I made that chart of how I think complicated it is to try and manage the basis. If they were to let the spot price, the physical price rise, um, uh, you, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, first of all, that, I, I suppose that's that wouldn't... I mean, the spot price. Yeah, yeah, yeah let, let the spot price rise. I suppose uh, that would not work in backwardation. They'd also, have to, at the same time, they'd have to be pushing up the futures price even more strongly to put it back into contango. And that, uh, to me, I mean, if the, if the government were to fight it that way, that means they wouldn't be dumping physical bullion on the spot market, and they also would actually be putting buying pressure on gold. I mean, I think that's, the la you know, that's a one-two punch that the government would never want to do to the price of gold because it would, 
it would almost be as bad as the uh, as uh, uh, Bernanke uh, signaling his quantitative easing, saying, "I'm going to spend a trillion dollars on bonds," and like you said, letting the bond investors front run them. All the gold investors or anybody with any kind of inclination to buy gold would be there first, and gold would be five thousand dollars an ounce the next morning. Uh, I don't know. Um, you know I, I don't know that that would be an alternative for them. But again, you know, I'm not a. You, you might be able to answer that better, actually, uh, yes, Andy. I think that, um, Sandy, may I ask you to come out yeah. and join the panel, please? Yeah. Um, I think that uh, if, if one wanted to manipulate the basis, um, instead of attacking both ends of it, if you, if you imagine as, as, as you're looking at it, uh, the curve is like that, you could, you could just attack the spot end and start selling spot with the, with the, uh, with the hope that the, the forward market stays where it is and it naturally drives it back into a relative contango again. So you don't need to take action at both ends of the, uh, of the curve. Um, now what they actually do, uh, I have no idea, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just pure speculation. But if I were a devious person, that's what I would try and do. Um, or alternatively, start aggressively purchasing futures contracts in order to maintain the, the price at that end of the curve. But not to attack both ends, just one end at each time. Um, and I think also we have to bear in mind that if, if, if the price is being manipulated one way or another, um, you know, if, if, if they want to manipulate the price of gold by futures alone, then, you know, selling futures outright will drive the price naturally into a backwardation itself anyway. So, um, there are many angles that you can look at it at in many different ways that you can sort of say, well, they could try this, they could try that. But that's the way that I would try it if I had no morals or scruples. <laughs> and an unlimited supply of bullion to uh, dump on the market too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Obviously, you can't you can't uh, induce you can't induce a positive carry indefinitely by dumping spot gold because there's only a finite amount of them for that to to do it with. So it's a very expensive way of trying to maintain the contango. But they might try anything, who knows. <laughs> yeah, you know, Sandeep is very nice. I mean, I see now it's quite a simplified model I put up there because, of course, there's the forward. The, the, yeah, it's, it's much more complicated. I mean, I do understand that. But uh, Sandeep is very kind not to point out any uh, oversimplification that I had there. <laughs> if you had to, and now this is a question addressed to both of you. So you can take turns, and perhaps Daryl will decide who answers first and who answers second. Suppose you are given a billion dollars to manage in gold and silver funds. What would you do in view of these possibilities? You could go the naive way of, you could ignore the basis and just do some uh, pricing. But then you could take the basis into account, it's a second choice. Basis uh, improved by arbitrage and options. What would you do? What would 
your preference be? How would you put that $1 billion fund to work to get the best results? If, if somebody gave you a billion dollars of cash, the, uh, of dollars? Um, it's start from, you start okay. from cash. Okay. Nathan, you go. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, knowing what I know now about uh, how the um, how the uh, bull in, bulls in bears skin are operating, I guess I would attempt to emulate them. Uh, that seems to me the most profitable uh, operation. I would park uh, whatever I didn't need for actual margin or um, uh, other operating capital. I would park that directly in the metals. I suppose I would favor silver over gold, although it would be difficult to buy a billion dollars worth of silver, so I suppose I would buy as much silver bullion as I could and the rest would be gold without disturbing, unduly disturbing the market. And then I would start in with the, um, that exact strategy of writing what appear to be naked calls and, and I guess selling the futures as well. I'm not going to mix myself up with the terminology here if I carry on too much longer, but I would attempt to enact that. So I guess that's choice three of yours. I wouldn't attempt to merely, uh, because um, uh, it's, it's a more conservative approach to do that, but presumably the people that are giving that to me are, you see, I guess I'm uh, assuming some parts of the question here. Presumably if somebody handed me a billion dollars and said, Nathan, please execute the strategy, I would say, well, I'm pretty sure they don't want just the sort of the safe, boring money market fund sort of approach. They want me to try and go all out to maximize it. And I, it's hard to estimate what profits the bulls and bear skins are making, but I would say it's probably north of 15 or 20% a year. Uh, in terms of ounces, growth of ounces when measured in gold ounces. So that is the strategy I would... Uh, sorry, I think I left out the third, your third choice. Uh, you said just a naive... Oh yeah, naive strategy, uh, basis or options. Yeah, so I would choose the most aggressive, uh, the, the third one. I think um, I would be doing the options strategy as well, but augmenting the position of where the options are written um, how far out of the money you want to go. Um, also augmenting it with put writing as well at the same time. But solely being guided by what the basis is saying for the particular metal. So if, for example, at the moment, you know, the markets are comparatively orderly, um, there's no compulsion for me to be um, especially bullish at the moment on the gold price. So I'm quite happy having written full calls against all of my holdings. Now, if, if that changes, then obviously the strategy for how one writes the calls will change. If the basis starts to fall, then I don't want to be particularly exposed to having written calls at that juncture. So I would use the option strategy, well we will be doing the option strategy that Can way. describe the option strategy in a nutshell? Yes, I mean effectively, you know, it's, I think the thing about covered call writing is that, um, you know, you're not just writing calls willy-nilly, you're writing it because the, the annualized rate at which you write at the money calls is very high. You're at 45% plus in some cases with gold bullion. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the question then becomes, you know, if your gold is called away, which is always a possibility, it will only be so because the annualized rate is in excess of 45%. Um, now, I am long-term bullish the gold price for the next half a century at least, you know, so 
but I don't think it will exceed 45% per year you know, for the next 50 years, because that will be a, a very, very large return by the end of 50 years. Um, the other side to it is you know, one doesn't have to write calls, one can write puts. You know, I'm perfectly willing to set a price at which I'm willing to buy gold. Um, if the basis is saying that uh, the price is likely to escalate again soon, then you, know, you hold off on the call writing, or you're not as aggressive on the call writing, and you become more aggressive on the put writing um, at lower levels to augment the income at that moment as well. So it's, they're, they're, uh, I was discussing this over dinner uh, last night, but there was a, a Merrill Lynch fund which was writing call options against the S&P 500 index. So they held a basket of stocks, or they held index futures, S&P index futures, writing call options against it in a purely, purely mechanical manner. Uh, and so from 1990, Onwards, you know, if you if you base S&P at 19990 by 2005, 2006, the S&P was whatever it was, 200. The augmented this Merrill Lynch strategy was uh, had given you about sort of 300. Um, but because of the mechanical nature of the way that they were writing calls, um, they actually gave it all up and a lot more. Um, in 2007 and into 2008. So it's, you know, you have to have a dynamic approach to, to how you write calls and the only way, and puts, and the only way that you can do that is with, with the basis, really, by monitoring the basis, not really in the, 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 the arbitrage way that Nathan was talking about, but merely, merely, merely sort of, um, you know, merely concluding that if the basis is falling, continually falling, the first derivative is negative, um, then the price of, the nominal price of gold itself is likely to, to go up at some point. Might not be that day or that week, but likely to happen soon. And if you're on the wrong side of it, then, you know, heaven help you. I have another question addressed to both and the game asked Daryl to decide who in what order it is. Could you describe as you see the relationship between the basis on the one hand and option premiums on the other? And I mean both call option premium and put option premium in a simple way. If if you see any relationship um, there must be a relationship. It's not something that I've uh, I've looked into at the moment yet, though. Um, I mean, the way that um, if you think about the bull in bear's bear skin, if if you're trying to explain the large short position on COMEX of the silver futures and gold futures that Mr. Butler likes to talk about. Um, if you're sitting there with a large holding of bullion and you're writing call options against it, selling call options to someone against it, the people or the banks that are purchasing those call options on the back of your sale will themselves need to delta hedge and 
then delta hedging means that they must be going short futures, which is the part that Mr. Butler sees as just a naked short future, basically. Now, the thing about when you write call options, they'll be over the counter, I imagine, if China is doing them in size. So it's not in a sort of, uh, it's not in a, in a standard exchange setting, completely invisible, which is why Mr. Butler is confused. And obviously, if you are delta hedging using futures, which is, which is a function of having written call options, then it, there must be a relationship with the basis. It's not something that I've looked at yet. Something to do. <laughs> yeah, I know this is unfair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it's nice to have this impromptu. Yeah. <laughs> because we, we all have a feeling for that, but it's difficult to put in words. They, well, keeping in mind that the. Uh, I had no real-world experience with delta hedging, and the last time I did any computations with it was about 15 years ago in MBA school. So, uh, but I think that um, I think it is safe to say that uh, if the basis is uh, falling or is already low, then the premiums would have to rise on both puts and calls, just because uh, investors in the gold market would be expecting some sort of dramatic move. Uh, and, but I mean, that's, that's a very low-level explanation of it. I mean, I'd, I'd have to even, you know, I'd have to go through my old notes even to be able to talk intelligently on, you know, or comment intelligently on what Sandeep just said. So, uh, but that, that would be my first comment, that the basis signaling something about to happen would suggest to me that the premiums would get higher because volatility always drives the uh, call and, and put premiums higher. So, and, and, or expected, I should say, expected future volatility often caused by previous recent volatility, but can also be indicated to the, you know, these are sophisticated players doing these uh, advanced option strategies, so uh, they may well be watching the basis as well. Could you invite questions to both members of the panel from the floor? Right up. And um, one point with the option everything is clear, but it comes to my mind how that now cash price against basis, which was presented as very well, but there's also still the, pro uh, the possibility that selling it to the strength and buy into the dips. Um, did you compare that against the basis um, outcome? You never, uh, I purpose the same thing to strength and into this because the market, perfect market timing will be with the best, uh, all the, the best systems that always achieve. But definitely you can go this contrary and buy into when you think two thirds or three quarters of the dip is now accomplished, it doesn't matter. You wait patiently on the sidelines and when it's really going up, going out and see you have made 50% to sell it into the price. How would that compare with the basis? Well, it, it's, it's dangerous, especially with gold, uh, assuming that it has reached an intermediate bottom and, and going long, especially on margin. But what can be observed, um, which is not something I ever do, by the way, um, what can be observed is that um, if you are moving into a retraction in the gold price, you can expect the basis to at some point start to fall, and that is your cue to 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 look to go long. Um, and obviously, the contrary is true as well. So they do tie in together. So the basis is a very good indicator. Yes, it, it is a good indicator. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I guess I guess that's what it comes down to is. Um, 
sure, if you can if you can sort of get into the rhythm in any stock or whatever, and, and as it fluctuates, you're you're selling into strength and buying into into the weaknesses that's coming on. But yeah, if the basis is actually allowing you to do that, maybe even with better timing than you would have otherwise, just by sensing it, then that's the that's is I guess it, the is difference. Is it fair to say or to assume that as long as the basis doesn't move much, meaning uh, spot in the future goes hand in hand down or up doesn't matter, but then when the basis starts moving, as an airing or enlarging, the turning point is coming. Something is about to happen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think and I think Tom's done work along those exact lines. Uh, but again, what what's that? Yeah, yeah, I know he's got some. And well, I'm, well, I'm a subscriber. I'm embarrassed to say I'm a subscriber, but I've hardly had time to uh, to uh, read what's in there. So. I have been <coughs> criticized by a lot of readers of my articles that my predictions about the collapse of COMEX have not materialized. And we have backwardation in gold, we have backwardation in silver, and look, they are still there going strong, and in terms of their uh, warehouse stocks, they are still flourishing. Uh, well, I, all, all I can say is just wait and see whoever laughs, laughs, laughs best. But, you know, this is a kind of flippant answer. Perhaps there is a deeper way of answering that. Can you comment on this? How this backwardation, which is the first for both methods, really, right? sustained backwardation. How it affected COMEX? Is it really true that they are just as strong as ever? Well, uh, I can say, um, I don't remember if it was in one of your essays, Professor, or somewhere else, someone advanced the theory that um, the uh, the backwardation was partly, or rather, sorry, not the backwardation, but the um, uh, the decline in the gold price in uh, the fall uh, down to its low. I can't remember when exactly the dates were, but uh, it was evidence that was around the time that people thought that the COMEX was going to default. And it was the fact that just just the same way that a bond of a of a company that is near bankruptcy stops trading on the um, on the yield and starts trading on the assets that are backing it and what would be recovered. And so that's how you get some companies' bonds falling to 50 cents on the dollar or whatever. That, that was the same sort of principle going on in the COMEX market that, in fact, the reason that the spot price of COMEX gold was falling was because people were saying, well, we know that there are, I forget what the ratio is, I think something like one ounce of gold for every four ounces outstanding of contracts on the COMEX. And therefore, I know that if there ever is a final run on the COMEX, really, you'll get 25 cents on the dollar. And you know, now I multiply that by the probability of that happening, and gold, instead of continuing up from $1,000 US per ounce on the COMEX, now fell to uh, 750 And that, to me, that, or 700 or whatever the low point was, and so you can work out what the sort of the implied probability of default in December was there. Now that, to me, that was a very um, uh, elegant uh, theory, but I can't think through, again, I don't know enough about how the uh, gold futures markets work to say whether that's valid and that you can make that argument all the way down. Uh, so please, Sandeep, fill me in on whether you, whether you heard that as well and whether you dismissed it or... I, I, d I didn't hear that, um, uh, but I, I did read, read somewhere that when we were looking at the um, 
the expiry schedule of the December contract approaching 40% of uh, COMEX warehouses. Even that led me astray slightly as well. Um, I think what you have to remember is that these 400 ounce bars must stay in the financial system in order to remain valid to be allocated or unallocated or whatnot. Delivery, yeah. You know, you can't, you can't say, right, I'm going to take it out and put it in my cash box at home and then give it back to Bank of Nova Scotia uh, for them to do whatever they want to do with it because they, they won't accept it. It has to remain in the system. So when you look at... In other words, they can deny delivery? Yeah. No, they, they can't deny delivery. They, they just will, they, they won't accept it back uh, if you've taken it out and brought it home. Oh, they say, okay, we have to go through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. say it, and, you know, you could have done something funny to it, you know, we can't trust you now that it's been out of our banks, you know, that there, there, there's something, something dodgy could have been done to it. Well, they should welcome more. No, I know, I know, they only welcome it from the approved list of refiners that uh, the LBMA is quite gracious to give. But... I think when you look at the acceptances and deliver uh, deliveries um, across the various banks that COMEX give in their daily report, um, yes, 40% of contracts, 40% uh, of the total inventory in the warehouses at that time might have been called for delivery, but they just went like that, though. So they all stayed in the warehouse, and it was just a, uh, a sort of turnover of the unless the gold is actually being taken out because uh, you know, people think there is systemic financial risk for whatever reason and they want it under their bed, you're not going to see the COMEX default as quickly as you might have thought it might have done. But nevertheless, it still will happen at some point because that will happen at some point. Yeah, well, yeah actually, can I just add to that? That reminded me of, of one of the comments I read by another author who said that uh, Two of the bullion banks, I think J.P. Morgan and um, I can't remember which other one, actually did withdraw a fair bit of their own gold for their own trading account, but they have the advantage of, of not having to break the good delivery chain because they can take it into their own warehouses yeah. off COMEX. Now it's sort of safe in their own custody. But, uh, and so that, that was actually, I guess the, the guy didn't come out and say this, but that's what he was implying. That was actually a far greater threat. The bullion banks themselves deciding that COMEX had had it and you know they ought to know any better than anybody else. And withdrawing their gold, it wasn't sort of the smaller, medium-sized investor that was going to break the back yeah. of Comex. And is that does that square yeah. with what you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's what happened partly in December. And isn't it just a spread curse and the normally change the rules? Uh, it wasn't happening in gold, but one and a half years ago, it was in London with copper when the storage was really really empty. Mm. We did the enforce a lot of cash settlement and the three biggest holders, even they didn't want to sell, they have been forced to sell once they're physical into the market. Yeah, that was that was that nickel and silver. I think nickel. Or not nickel. Yeah, 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 but I know what you're talking. I know what you meant. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was a penalty of about one percent per day. I think. You can do it with also in such a situation. Would be occurred. Mm. Okay. Okay. Was okay. Was yeah, I think it's a different thing if it happens in gold versus yeah. nickel, really. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they could do that. Okay, yeah. The cash settlement, the remaining last one percent physical. Yeah. So the rest just has to be cash and that's it. Yeah. Do you have a question? Oh, Red. Yeah, I I heard that you could if the bars were taken out. Uh, comments. 
you could send it back to Delaware uh, Depository. Oh well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, we tell our people when they when they're buying our bars through our new bars program that, of course, if we store it, Scotia Makata or Scotia Bank, I should say, is one of the bullion banks, and so it stays in good deposit if if you let us store it for you. But yeah, as soon as we ship it out, not only is it the cost of shipping and insuring, you know, for the voyage, but they, that's right, getting it back in, they they have to go through, and, and they we don't even know, we don't even quote them a price for the assay because we don't know, you know, who depending on the use. But I don't. I have not heard that that is a method for getting bars back into good delivery. Maybe it is. No, I haven't heard of that. If, if, yeah. if they are one, of, you see, there are a set of. Not only are there eleven registered uh, bullion banks or twelve or whatever it is, but 